Let's reopen our Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and let's take up the 8th verse, which opens up his introduction after the 7 verses of the salutation. A salutation is where you identify who you are, to whom you are writing, and give them a blessing and greeting. And we have that in the first 7 verses. It begins with Paul, the writer of this epistle, God being the author. And then it's to all that be in Rome in the 7th verse, his audience. And in between, he tells a little bit in passing about his job as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, identifies Jesus Christ in verses 3 and 4, identifies his apostleship and the purpose for his ministry in verse 5, and then describes them in verse 7 as the beloved of God and called to be saints and gives them a blessing. I've often done this, and I, I don't mean to be repetitive unnecessarily, but so many times we watch our children write letters, and I hope that we can do better, where they say, Dear Jamie, how are you? I am fine. Now that's a salutation of sorts, but it's not a very intelligent one. You were the object, not the writer. So I wasn't picking on you, Jamie. This is a salutation that we had in verses 1 through 7. And if we could think, pray, and speak to one another more along the lines of grace to you, And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the nicest salutation you could ever give a person. And the Lord said in number six, they will be blessed. When we put his name on someone. And you say, well, that was for the priests. That's why I said earlier, you're all kings and priests in Jesus Christ. We ought to be blessing each other that way like Paul blessed the Romans. But we want the eighth verse of the introduction that runs from verse eight through verse 15 as he describes why he wants to get to Rome to meet these saints and to establish them in the faith. Then he enters right into a summary of the whole epistle in verses 16 and 17, and then his argumentation starts in verse 18, as he's going to argue for about three chapters that all men are condemned and come short of the glory of God without salvation in Jesus Christ. But right now we want the eighth verse, and there's a lot in the eighth verse. First, though we're in the 8th verse, he starts out with the word first, because this is the first point he's making, and he's opening up his introduction. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Amen Amen and amen. First, I thank my God. Paul knew the source of all spiritual blessings and all spiritual actions are found in the Lord himself. I'll not repeat the verse, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but you know what's there. Because I mentioned it a couple times in the first assembly about how we're bound to give thanks. Paul knew that if a person believed the gospel and attended to his preaching or read his writing, it was because the Lord had opened their hearts. Because he knew, Acts 16.14, that the Lord opened the heart of Lydia so that she attended unto the things that were spoken of Paul. Paul knew that God made all the difference in how his gospel was received. God must draw sinners. Jesus himself said, No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Therefore, Paul starts right out by saying, First, 
I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because if it hadn't been for God's grace and mercy, they would not have believed the gospel. They would not be saints waiting in Rome to see him. If the Romans were as he had described them in verse 7, beloved of God and called to be saints, then he needed to thank God for them, because that choice was God's choice. We look at the words, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, but that's God's choice, therefore God should be thanked, because he made that choice on behalf of the Romans. God's grace is necessary for us in election, in justification, in regeneration, and it will be necessary for us in glorification, but it's also necessary for us in conversion. And Paul is thanking God for these Roman saints and what he is about to say about for them. Because their faith was a gift from God, it had been worked in them by God, and God had graciously blessed them to obey the gospel and to be living lives that were worthy of a worldwide reputation. Paul, Paul always often opened up his epistles with these words of thanksgiving. You can go through the epistles and it's a lesson and we give thanks all the way to God for you, and then he'll describe some character trait or conduct by those that he's writing that he knows comes from the Lord. And he thanks the Lord for it. And we ought to be thankful for it as well. Paul claimed Jehovah as his own God. Look at the words. First, I thank my God. And brethren, I, I ask you and I call upon you, is God your God? Is he your God? Is Jehovah your God? Amen. How many times do you think David used such words in the book of Psalms? He is my God, my king, my God, my shepherd. Amen. He's mine. Is he yours, brethren? Make him yours. He is infinitely able to have a personal relationship with you while having it with a person on the other side of the aisle or with me in the pulpit. He is able. We can have a personal relationship with God. And here is Paul writing to Roman saints. But he doesn't say in this particular place, our God. He says, first, I thank my God. And I want him to be your God. And he wants to be your God and for you to be his people, individually and collectively. Do you know the living and true God of heaven? Is Jehovah your own God? First, I thank my God. See, Paul understood that for an idol worshiper to love the Lord Jesus Christ, an idol worshiper to give up the lusts of their flesh and to wait for his son from heaven, like 1 Thessalonians 1 describes of these saints, it was the work of God. And we must always thank God. We have been thankful in a prayer that was just offered. We are thankful for God's love toward us. We were thankful for God's adoption of us as his children. We are thankful for the truth that God showed us. We're thankful that God gave us a heart to love that truth. Because earlier in that same chapter of 2 Thessalonians 2, it says, Because they received not the love of the truth. We would be just like them if it hadn't been for God putting the love of the truth in our hearts. Every bit of it is from the Lord. Since I shared this yesterday with a brother, I'm going to turn to it right now and share it with you. When David saw Israel... Forget the, forget the eternal phase, the, the, the legal phase, the vital phase, the final phase of salvation. And just think about our practical phase of how the Lord works in us to get us here this morning. 
The Lord works in us to listen to his word. The, the Lord works in us conviction about sin. The Lord works in us thanksgiving for chastening. When David saw all of Israel come and give very generously for the building of the temple, right. and while he is just be, about to die, David is just about to die, he's about to crown Solomon king for the second time, and he gives, and he gives a little speech to the people of Israel, telling them how important the temple was to him, and how he had gathered with all his might. And he gives this little, and he calls the blessings of heaven down upon Israel. And the Israelites came forward and buried David in the gifts that they brought for the temple. It's in First Chronicles 29. David sees that, and he says, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, our fathers, Keep this forever in the imagination of the thoughts of the heart of thy people and prepare their heart unto thee. First, I thank my God. When David saw practical application and practical obedience like he did in the parts of the Israelites, he thanked God and he asked God to keep that always in the imaginations of the thoughts of the heart of those people and to prepare their hearts to really worship the Lord. Because even in the practical phase, we need the power and the grace and the mercy and the peace and the strength of God the Holy Spirit for us to amount to anything, even practically. Though we understand our duty in the practical phase and we have no duty in the eternal, legal, vital, or final phases, it still is by God's grace that we are ever, ever able to put forth strength in the practical phase. And you pray for it. It took about six sermons or eight sermons ten years ago entitled A Pure Heart. I can't remember how many sermons it was, but it was. I remember the outline. It's that long, and it's just jam-packed full of scriptures because there are so many verses like this that God even has to change, move, and lift up our hearts in the practical phase. We are so dependent on daily grace because without daily grace, our flesh will swallow up our heart. You all know that, too, if you're honest. And so David made that prayer. He saw their hearts, and he said, Lord, I, I know that you're doing something very special right now. Keep it there always in the imaginations of the thoughts of their hearts. We need to pray for God to stir up the imaginations of the thoughts of our hearts and to prepare our hearts to worship Him because we can do better and better by God's grace even in the practical phase. Back to Romans. All of that was to say, first, I thank my God. Do you understand? Paul knew and Paul understood that any good thing in the Romans was because of God's grace in their lives. It is not by methods. We do not change the methods to change a person's heart. That's the rest of the Christian world. If we get the music loud enough, if we get the music contemporary enough, if we have enough programs for the children, if we have enough activities for the adults, if we do this and if we do that, if we relax the environment a little bit by having casual worship, we can help people. Oh no, it is God's grace that helps every soul one at a time. The rich man in hell begged Abraham that he would send Lazarus back from the dead to preach and have a worship service with his five brothers so that they wouldn't come to hell. 
And Abraham said, son, they have Moses and the prophets. They have church services every Sabbath day. And the rich man said, "Uh, that isn't good enough. I need Lazarus to go back. They know the beggar that laid at my gate and the dogs licked his sores. If he came back from the dead, they would believe and they wouldn't come here. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. If they won't listen to them, it wouldn't matter if someone came back from the dead. Now, what kind of a church service would that be? Pipe up the praise band. Everybody's there in casual and somebody rises from the dead. Without the grace of God, it wouldn't move a single soul. Oh, people might jump up and down and invite Jesus into their heart, but that's not described anywhere in the Bible. Then they go out and live the same way they've always lived. Because the only thing that changes our hearts to live a different kind of a life is the grace of God. First, I thank my God. We are bound to give thanks. Now I'm breaking my own commitment not to quote it again. Of 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Well, I'll stop right there. I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Brethren, when you look at that 8th verse, and when we want to lay hold of everything that is in the 8th verse, first, we thank our God. Then we make that God personal. Then we recognize that God is responsible for every good thing that ever comes out of us. It is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. If you even have the desire to please God, God worked it in you. If you have the ability to bring that desire to pass in your life, it's God that worked it in you. And you're to work it out. What God's worked in through fear and trembling. I thank my God, but then he identifies the conduit, the means, the instrumentality of the grace of God in our lives. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ. So many preach that I thank my God through preaching. I thank my God through seven sacraments. I thank my God through different things, but they miss that the grace of God comes by one channel. The Lord Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and men. For us to ever have a peaceful relationship with God, it's Jesus Christ's intercession that's at stake. For us to be able to ever go to God and have an audience in the throne room of heaven, it's the Lord Jesus Christ that makes it possible by being our high priest at His right hand. I thank my God through Jesus Christ. And that is how we always want to thank. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18 says it this way. Listen to this. For through him, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. For through him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. For through the Lord Jesus Christ, we both have access. Who are the both? Jews and Gentiles. Jews can't get there with animal sacrifices. Jews couldn't get there with the high priest from Aaron's lineage. Jews had to get there through Jesus Christ just like we get To God the Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ. For through Him, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. You say, well, what role does the Spirit play? Let's just cheat a little bit by running ahead to Romans chapter 8, where we're told that the Spirit prays for us in two ways. One, He prays for us according to the will of God. Two, He prays for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. I like both of them. 
But we have it through the Lord Jesus Christ. We would never get near God. Job knew that. And he said, oh, I wish there was a daysman between us that could put one hand on God and one hand on me and be a mediator for us. Well, we have that mediator. We know him. We know his name. We know his mother. We know his place of birth. We know his life. We know about 33 and a half years. And we know where he is right now. And we know what he looks like. Because the Bible tells us, Jesus, our Savior. I thank God through Jesus Christ for you all. Because it was by God's grace through Jesus Christ that there were Roman saints in the center of that pagan empire. In the capital of that pagan empire. In the shadow of the Colosseum. Praise God. I thank my God. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. When we pray, we close by saying in some way, shape, or form, in Jesus' name, amen. I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, If you will ask anything in my name, my Father will do it, that he might be glorified in me, and that I might be glorified in him, in Jesus' name. When we say, in Jesus' name, and you can say it as often as you want in your prayers, we invoke the highest name in the universe. The devils tremble. Heaven and earth shakes. You say, heaven and earth don't shake... Then go read Psalm 18 when David prayed and didn't even know Jesus yet. But just the fact that Jesus was going to come from David, heaven and earth shook. But heaven and earth shakes when we pray in Jesus' name. Your prayer gets immediate access into the throne room of God. You get to come before the judge in the black robe and there's a smile on his face because you've just mentioned the name of his only begotten son in whom he is well pleased and he is his beloved son. And you are telling the judge in the black robe, I love that son. And I'm coming to you in the name of that son who told me to come to you in his name. And that judge smiles from the judgment seat of heaven. The holy God of heaven allows you in. I'm trying to save. There's so many passages. Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, let us come boldly under the throne of the throne of terror. Therefore, let us come boldly under the throne of fear. Therefore, let us come boldly under the throne of pure holiness. No, therefore, let us come boldly under the throne of grace. That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's verse 16. What's it based on? It's based on verses 14 and 15. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. When you invoke the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, heaven stops. And the God of heaven will allow you free access in. And so we say, in Jesus' name, don't... I know that you're, you're thinking while you're praying. You're thinking of your requests. You're thinking of your thanksgivings. You're, you're thinking of your confession. You're thinking of your worship toward God. But remember, there's a fifth component of prayer. And you should think about it and not let, just let the words roll off your tongue. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I know that those of you who've watched very much charismatic television and are, and are part of charismatic churches possibly in the past, you heard the name too much, they didn't even know the Jesus of the Bible. They're up there pretending to be his apostles. None of them 
are even close to being one of his apostles. It's impossible to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ in the year 2009. Enough about all that. I know you get sick of hearing them use that name. But I want to tell you something. That name is the name which is above every name. Amen. And it's that name that every knee shall bow and confess that he is Lord right. of all. And so Paul says, first, when he gets over his salutation, get the pretty stuff out of the way. It was We took eight weeks on it, or eight sermons. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. That gets straight into the throne room of God, and Paul acknowledges every good thing that was in the Roman saints was because of God's grace, which is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ, you were utterly lost in time and eternity. Jesus is our Savior in every way. We need Him in every part of our lives. We need Him always. That's why we ought to be saying to each other, Grace to you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that what it says in verse 7? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would he use the words the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 7 then use them again in verse 8? Get used to it when you read Paul. Get used to it because he was the greatest name dropper and he was dropping the greatest name. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the devils? They said, Jesus we know and Paul we know, but who in the world are you false exorcists? And one devil-possessed man jumped on seven exorcists, stripped them all naked and chased them out into the city streets. But they knew who Jesus was. They fell and worshipped him. They worshipped Jesus over and over. Jesus could ask a question of them, what is your name? Do you think they said, we don't want to tell you what our name is? Do you think? Legion. Well, if there's so many of you, why didn't you tell them you wouldn't do it? Because they know who their Lord is. They know better than men know. The devils believe and tremble. Do you tremble? Do you understand the power of prayer? I thank my God through Jesus Christ. How can God save sinners? Only one way. Through Jesus Christ, the perfect substitute. How can he be just and a justifier? A God who cannot clear, a God who cannot acquit, and a God who cannot look on iniquity. How can he be just? That means I don't, let a, I don't allow a single sin to get past me. He's just. How can he be a justifier and declare someone to be guiltless and innocent and pure and righteous before him? Well, we got more on this subject to come. How can he do both? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because he punished the Lord Jesus Christ for our sins, and he gave us the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's how we can do it. Through a perfect substitute. And trust me, anyone that the Lord Jesus Christ died for can't be in hell, because what are they going to be punished for? Who shall anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifieth. Their sins have been paid for completely, once for all. We believe that. They're just not words to us. We believe it. So we thank God through Jesus Christ for you all. What all? Who all? In that eighth verse. All the call of Jesus Christ that are beloved of God and that are faithful. He wasn't writing to all Romans, but to the Roman believers with these characteristics that have been described in our context. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. That your faith, your faith, the first active thing he mentioned about these brethren is their faith. Faith is the belief and trust in God's promises and God's existence 
and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The Bible defines faith for us. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, things beyond your sight that science doesn't tell you about. No one in the secular world can tell you about them because they can't see them. They're out of their sight. They don't even know they exist. They're mysteries to them, but they're not mysteries to us. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the evidence of things beyond our sight. Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That is faith. By faith Abel, by faith Enoch, by faith Noah, by faith Abraham. How did they do the things that they did by faith? Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Noah had never seen it rain. Noah had never turned his windshield wipers on. He didn't have windshield wipers on his car. He didn't have a visor on his motorcycle. He didn't need eaves troughs. There was no rain. But the Lord said, I'm going to send, I'm going to send so much water down that you're going to need a boat to survive it. But he went and built a boat to the saving of his family. Hebrews 11 tells us about it. Abel may never have seen God, but God had told him that he needed to offer a bloody sacrifice. And so he offered the fat of his flock. And his older brother brought of the fruit of the ground a prettier offering. It was beautiful. But Abel brought the one that God told him to bring. And God accepted Abel. And God accepted Abel's sacrifice. And God rejected Cain. And God rejected Cain's sacrifice. Though Cain brought it to the right God at the right time. It wasn't good enough. Faith believes everything that God has written and trusts every promise that God has made and lays hold of every declaration of the Word of God and rests itself for time and eternity on the Word of God and God's truthfulness and faithfulness that He will perform all that He's promised. Abraham couldn't figure out how he and Sarah were going to have a child. He was dead reproductively. He knew that. Every man figures that out when it happens. He knew that Sarah was dead reproductively, but God said, I'm going to give you a son through Sarah in your old age. And it says he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith. Unbelief would have said that's impossible. Faith says, though I don't know how, that's possible. And being strong in faith, he believed that God was able to perform what he had promised. These people did this. Do you think the Roman emperor loved Christianity? Do you think he, lo- he loved them singing about their king, Jesus Christ? It moved them one bit. They knew they had a king, and they knew that king was coming for them, and they knew that if Caesar took them out to meet their king early, that would be okay too. They were like the three Hebrew men as they stood before Nebuchadnezzar, and they said, O king, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. We don't know if God's going to deliver us or not from your fiery furnace, but we know one thing for sure. We are not going to bow down to your golden image. That's faith. And the Romans had it. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith. Faith. When things get difficult in your life, faith will save you. When the devil tells you lying little deceiving notions that you put in your head and you think they're your thoughts, they're not your thoughts. The devil has sown them there and you're to hold up the shield of faith and quench the fiery darts of the wicked. Don't let that melancholy spirit of you tell you that you're not acceptable to God. Don't let that melancholy spirit tell you that because I've failed in the past, I'm going to fail in the future. That's the devil trying to make you a failure. 
Hold up the shield of faith and quench those fiery darts. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. He's given me enough strength right now to recognize the little lie that I was just told I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. And I'm going to do it by the power of God, believing in faith, what He has promised. Brethren, we have a whole Hebrews 11 that we call the Hall of Faith for the Old Testament saints. But we have New Testament descriptions as well, like this right here. The Romans belong in the Hall of Faith of the New Testament. They were suffering persecution. Do you know what he's going to have to comfort them with in Romans chapter 8? That all things work together for good to them that love God. Because they were suffering persecution. He's going to say in Romans chapter 8, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. They already believe that. He is going to comfort them by saying, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. Those things can't touch our relationship with the unseen High King of Heaven. But we see Him with the eye of faith, because faith is the substance of things hoped for, and the evidence of things not seen. Though we have not seen the Lord Jesus Christ and the glorified wounds in His hands, we see Him by faith. And he sits on a white horse at the head of the armies of heaven. And he's coming with all the host of heaven to deliver us out of this world. And see, you don't really care. You don't really care because you're not suffering like those Romans. But I hope you do care. You know how I mean when I talk like that. I hope you do care. But if we were suffering like the Romans, we would care more. We'd be hoping for something better. You know that we have a pretty good life right now. But you know what? That's the greatest danger of the 21st century. The good life that we enjoy right now. The Bible says, Jeshu run waxed fat and kicked. It's prosperity that makes us rebellious. If we were reduced to poverty and persecution, let me tell you, you'd be of a closer walk with God. I promise you, if you're a child of God and he reduced you to poverty and persecution, you would be going to him more than you are in prosperity and peace. But you know, prosperity and peace should give us the greatest advantage to serve him with more opportunities and privileges than any other group of people. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith. We are, we are running a race, brethren. And you know, we're, we're told we're running a race in Hebrews chapter 12. And Hebrews chapter 12 comes after Hebrews chapter 11, at least in my Bible. In Hebrews chapter 11, you have all those men. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, David, Samson, so forth. They're the great cloud of witnesses. But you know what? We also have the Romans and the Thessalonians and others. They're a great cloud of witnesses. Are we going to run our race and live the faithful lives that they did? That your faith. Faith is a very commendable matter. What did Paul like about Timothy's mother and grandmother? They had a good education, good genes, pretty hair, fixed great fried chicken. What did Paul like about Timothy's mother and grandmother? The great faith that was in those two women. And Paul could see it in Timothy. That it had been encouraged and stirred up and taught by those two women to Timothy. Faith is a good thing to have described about you. He is a man of faith. She is a woman of faith. She's like Lois and Eunice. She's full of faith and she teaches faith to her children. It's a good thing. Faith is only put to the test with adversity, primarily. 
We should still believe and we should still trust in God in the midst of prosperity. But when we have difficulties arise in our lives, that's when we should believe. You know, you can only show your faith on the job when you have a bad boss. You can't, how can you show your faith in the job with a good boss? You're going to work because you've got a good boss. You're happy because you've got a good boss. Keeps giving you raises, keeps giving you promotions, sends out emails that you're just the wonder, most wonderful thing since sliced bread as far as that company is concerned. That's a good boss. The, the good and gentle as the Bible describes them in 1 Peter chapter 2. But, you know, what if you have a forward boss? Doesn't keep his promises to you, ignores you, gives you the worst jobs, favors other people in the department, gives you poor reviews, doesn't, doesn't thank you for the, the extra things that you do. But if you, do, if you still submit to that man peacefully and cheerfully out of good conscience toward God, that is thankworthy. That is real faith. Because it's the substance of things hoped for. It's a reward that's going to come from God. It's the evidence of things not seen. God will take care of me on this job. I'm going to be cheerful, even though I was passed over three times in a row for that promotion that he promised me four times. Because I have the evidence that God is with me. And so I live by faith. There's much more that could be said. You know we could take those little words right there and preach another message that we've preached before called the life of faith. Just on those words. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of. A life rightly lived will be talked about. A a life rightly lived will be observed, talked about, and responded to. When the Bible says that we are to be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks a reason of the hope that is within us, when we're always to be ready to do that, That's because the Lord expects that to happen. Because a changed life will elicit observation, conversation, and questions. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may glorify your Father which is in heaven. Matthew 5.16 Peter would preach in 1 Peter chapter 2 that let your conversation be honest before the Gentiles so that they will glorify God in the day of visitation. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 12 so when it says here in Romans chapter 1 and verse 8, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of. Now, faith to be spoken of can't be a little faith. It's great faith. It's visible faith. It's real faith. It's constant faith. It's powerful faith. But it will be talked about. Timothy's two mothers, I mean mother and grandmother, in the Word of God, 2 Timothy 1.5, what in the world do we have the word Eunice? In the King James Bible for? Who in the world is Eunice? Who in the world is Lois? Why in the world are they in the Bible? Do you mean the great God of heaven said, put the names Eunice and Lois in 2 Timothy 1.5? Why? On what basis? Their faith was spoken of. Let our faith be spoken of. Will, Will each of you take a challenge I want to be the greatest believer of God's promises. The greatest defender of God's declarations. The greatest lover of His scriptures. The most confident of heaven. I want my faith to be spoken of, not for your praise. For the praise of the God who gave you the faith. You wouldn't have any. Because we had to start out this verse by saying, I thank my God through Jesus Christ that you have any faith. Is your faith spoken of? Look at all those illustrious elders that obtained a good report. Do you know what a good report is? People are talking about you. Hebrews chapter 11, they obtained a good report. 
They got it. They obtained a good report from God and they obtained a good report from others. The whole nation talked about David. The little guy came up and said, what are you letting him, talking about Goliath, what are you letting him blaspheme the God of heaven for? Well, look at how big he is. G- give me something. No, forget it. I'll just do it myself. And he ran to him. He ran to meet Goliath. He was talked about. His name was much set by in Israel. Look, we're still talking about the three men with those weird names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Still talking about them. Why? Because they had great faith. The word careful means not to be anxious, worried, or fearful. They said, O king, we are not careful. We are not worried, anxious, or fearful about the answer we're going to give you. Listen. His face was already so messed up, the Bible tells us, because they hadn't bowed. He he hadn't had anybody tell him no before. He'd never heard no, I'm not going to do it. And he told the praise band to start praying, and they did not fall down to worship his golden image, and it says his visage was changed. Up to that point, he had liked Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and promoted them highly in his government. But they said, we're not, we're not worried, we're not anxious, and we don't, we don't really care about what you think of our answer, but here's our answer. We don't know if God's going to save us or not from your fiery furnace, but we're not going to bow down. And see, we still talk about that. There's a chapter in the Bible about that. It's Daniel chapter 3. Is it worth reading? It is absolutely worth reading. That's what you ought to read and cut your teeth on. When when our children are small, I wish I could go back and do it all over again. I hate being 52. I wish I was 22. I only had about four then. But I would... Something like that. I wish I could go back. And I wish every parent in here that was younger, every one of our young parents, don't lose a single day by cutting your children's teeth on those Bibles... We are not fearful of you, O king. We know that you're messed up right now and you can cut our heads off in one second and you can throw us in that fiery furnace that is scorching our backs. But we are not going to bow down to your image. That, that's faith. That's faith. That's faith. And we want to build up our faith. Your faith is spoken of. It's spoken of. Look at... Can I read to you Third John, the 12th verse? Listen to these words. Demetrius hath good report of all men. All men talked about Demetrius and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record. And you know that our record is too true. Demetrius had quite a reputation. All men said good things about him. The truth commended him. And the apostles themselves said, we think that he's a great guy. You know our record is true. That's about a man named Demetrius. It's a verse in the Bible because his faith was spoken of throughout the whole world. All men spoke well of Demetrius. Look at Second Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And let's remind ourselves of an expression that we often use, that we ought to be living epistles. An epistle is a written document. It's a letter. It's communication. It's an email. Whatever it takes for your mind to lay hold of what is an epistle. It is communication from one person to another. We are to be living epistles. Right. We are to be an open book. We are to show the work and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ by the way that we conduct our lives. And it's right here in 2 Corinthians 3. Let me start at verse 1. I love these words. And we've just sung a song pertaining to it. The last song we sang had four verses written by Isaac Watts about this thought right here. Look at verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 3. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? This is the apostle talking about himself as apostles. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or need we, as some others, 
epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Do we need these letters of recommendation to prove that we are truly Jesus Christ's apostles? The answer is no. Verse 2, ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshy tables of the heart. Forget the Old Testament and two tables of stone that had the Ten Commandments by the finger of God written in stone. They didn't have that. They didn't need that. They didn't need a letter of commendation or a letter of recommendation. Because the Corinthians were the evidence that the Apostle Paul was a true apostle of Jesus Christ because he had ministered, built up, helped along what God had written in them on the fleshy tables of the heart. God the Holy Spirit had gone inside those Corinthians and turned them away from their idols to serve the living and true God. They were the epistle, known and read of all men, that they had changed lives. And that was a church that had a whole lot of internal problems, didn't they? They were messed up. But still, they were not worshiping idols anymore, and their lives had been changed, even though they had so many doctrinal and practical problems that this first epistle describes to us. The first epistle describes to us. This is what we want. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of. Are you a living epistle? Has Jesus Christ written on the fleshy tables of your heart love for him? Love for His Word. Love for His people. Do you show it by your life? Are you a living epistle? It has been said, the only Bible some people will read is your life. Oh, if only Paul could have opened up a Christian science bookstore in Rome. Oh, if only he could have had a bookstore in Rome. If only he could have had a website in Rome. If only he could have had a radio program in Rome. If only he could have gotten the television in Rome. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Amen. Do you know what he said about the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1? For from you sounded out the word of the Lord. Right. Was that by radio? No. Television? Tracks? Websites? Praise bands? Touring ministers? No. Reputation. Yes. Go read it. Reputation. What in the world has happened in Thessalonica? That there are a group of people there that have got rid of their idols. If it was at Ephesus, they burned all their books of witchcraft amounting to 50,000 pieces of silver and are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Gentiles didn't go around worshiping Jews, brethren. Jews have been a byword and a proverb in the earth for thousands of years by the judgment of God. What are Gentiles giving up Zeus, Jupiter, Apollo, Diana, and other gods of the Gentiles that were renowned in their pantheons of deities to worship the man Christ Jesus of Nazareth? What in the world had happened? We can torture them, we can beat them, we can imprison them. It doesn't move them. They just keep on singing. Your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Is your faith spoken of throughout the whole world? I don't care what else you accomplish. So you've got a few dollars above minimum wage. 
Good job. Good deal. You're a really smart guy, and you work really hard. You're a few bucks above minimum wage. Is that what you're spoken of? First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. May we be men of faith. If we're men of faith, our Bibles will be governed by the Word of God because we're going to believe everything He put there is not only from God, for us, for Him, and will benefit us. We're going to keep it. We're going to believe His warnings about not keeping it. We're going to love His Word because faith says that we're going to want to look like the other faithful men in this book, and they love praising Him. We could go on and on and on about the life of faith. Is your faith spoken of? When your name is mentioned... We want a reputation that when our names are spoken, the others think that man loves God. That man believes God. That man loves the Bible. That man keeps the Bible. That man talks about the Bible. His faith is great. If there's one thing we know about him, his faith is great. That's what we want it to be said about us. Let's go to the last expression. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Throughout the whole world. Look at Romans 16.19 to see that Paul's going to repeat that in this epistle. Romans 16.19. Brother Matthew already stole my thunder, but that is just fine. Thunder repeated is good. Because once you've heard it once and it's good, you want to hear it the second time. Fireworks always end too slow, too early. Too early. Matthew already mentioned the importance of the whole world and what he was reminded of from studying Matthew 24. But look at Romans 16, 19. For your obedience has come abroad unto all men. How many knew the obedience of the Roman saints? All men. I am glad, therefore, on your behalf, but yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. Let me, please let me note right here that it says obedience in this place and faith in Romans chapter 1. We've got the first chapter and the last chapter. One says faith, one says obedience, because without obedience you ain't got faith. Faith that isn't obeying God isn't real faith. That's a devilish faith. Faith without works is dead. Just like a body without the spirit is dead. It's just a corpse. So is faith without works. And so notice that it's faith in chapter 1, obedience in chapter 16. Both are said to be known of the whole world, throughout the whole world, and known of all men. Here is evidence, though it's sort of indirect right here, that the gospel had gone to the whole world. Already. Paul here is preaching, writing this epistle in, say, 65, 60, 55 A.D. Before he gets to Rome to meet these people face to face. And he writes and he says in the 8th verse, Your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. This is one of the points that Matthew was making, that the Lord has shown us truth and for which we are very thankful. The gospel had gone to the whole world by the ministry of the apostles. Look at Mark 16. Mark 16, this is such a simple point of doctrine, but it's important, and I'm going to show you how important it is, because there's a verse that is used by the Christian world right now that Jesus cannot come back until the gospel goes to the whole world. They make two errors on the verse. They're not even close to understanding it. Mark 16. Verse 15, Jesus said unto his apostles, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. 
And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they, that is the eleven apostles that were the audience right here, went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Well, there is there anyone that will say with me, Amen. Amen. So they went everywhere and preached the gospel with all the signs that Jesus Christ had given them in what is commonly called the Great Commission. They fulfilled it. They are the only ones that could fulfill it. They are the only ones that could do these signs and wonders. And Paul said, your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world, implying that the whole Christian world, worldwide, knew about the Romans' faith, because in the center and in the capital of that pagan empire, they feared the Lord Jesus Christ and lived for Him. Let's prove this point. Look at, look at uh, Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Quickly. Quickly, brethren. Romans chapter 10. The point we're trying to make right now is that during the lifetimes of the apostles, the gospel was preached to every creature worldwide. All men. Whatever the Lord Jesus Christ meant by the whole world, every creature and all men, the apostles accomplished it. Romans 10, verse 18, But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. Paul is taking Psalm 19, which is referring to the creation, and applying it to the ministry of the apostles, the preachers of the gospel, which has just been described in verses 14 through 17. He says, Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. Look at chapter 16. Romans 16, we've already been to verse 19, so we'll overlook it this time, and we'll go to verse 26. Verse 26, But now is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. The gospel had been made known to all nations. Romans 16, verse 26. Look at Acts chapter... Oh... There's so many verses. Colossians chapter 1. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut out a few. Colossians chapter 1. I didn't want to. Colossians chapter 1. These are ones you know well. There's three in Acts. The enemies, the enemies of the apostles knew. They said they, these men that have turned the world upside down are come hither. That's right. They knew they had turned the world upside down. Let their testimony be sufficient for these men who don't think the gospel went to the whole world. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 6, it is speaking about the truth of the gospel, which are the last few words of verse 5. If you look at verse 5, you can see, For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Verse 6, Which is come unto you as it is in all the world. And bringeth forth fruit. Look at verse 23 of the same chapter. Paul said, If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven. 
The gospel was preached to every creature under heaven, which is exactly what Jesus commanded his apostles to do in Mark 16, 15. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It was preached to every creature while Paul was still alive and could write and tell us that. In agreement with Mark 16, verses 19 and 20, so then they went and preached everywhere. Why am I so intense about this? How can they miss the point? Look at Matthew 24. Matthew 24. We're not waiting for that commission to be fulfilled. That commission was fulfilled. The gospel was taken into every nook and corner of this globe where God wanted it. And it's been there. And there have been churches hidden, tucked away and buried, meeting in houses, caves, woods, and out of the common view to avoid persecution. And the gospel's been there. That is why when we read Romans and we read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and we read through all the epistles, there isn't one word said about anyone keeping the Great Commission because it was already fulfilled. Do you know what he tells us to do? To live a holy life. We're called to be saints. He didn't say you're called to be missionaries. We're called to be saints. And if we would live a sanctified life, our faith would be spoken of and people would ask a reason of the hope that is within us. He tells us to be good wives, good husbands, good fathers, good mothers, good sons, good daughters, good employees, good employers, good citizens, good rulers, good church members, good brethren. That's what he tells us in all the epistles. Matthew chapter 24. Look at that 14th verse. This is precious. Do you know how many appeals are going to be made today for money? Give us, send us your money so that we can put this, this broadcast on more radio stations to reach the far corners of the earth so that Jesus can come back because Jesus is just up in heaven wanting to come, but he can't come back until we get the gospel to every nook and cranny of the earth. Oh, yeah. There's going to be many appeals made today from this verse. Matthew 24, verse 14. There's two problems with their appeal from this verse. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. This, I can just hear it right now. They read it, they, or they quote it, and then they ask for your money so that they can get their broadcast a little bit further so that Jesus can come back. Two problems. Number one, the gospel was preached in all the world for a witness, as we already proved by looking at six passages of Scripture and leaving several out. Two, the end that is described here is not the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's the coming of Jesus Christ to destroy the city of Jerusalem. Because God was going to get his message out that his son was king to the whole world for a witness of the gospel of the kingdom. And then the king would come and burn up his enemies. Because it says in verses 32 through 35, when you see the blossoms on a fig tree, you know that summer is nigh. And this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. And in that generation, the gospel went to the whole world. You know, where do we get all that from? First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. That gospel of the kingdom was preached by the apostles before 70 A.D. Then Jesus Christ destroyed Jerusalem and its temple. The Jewish nation and all of Old Testament worship was destroyed. And all these verses were fulfilled. Do you know what we're waiting for now? The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, everywhere there's an internet, we have our website. But that is not helping Jesus Christ come back. That's right. We are waiting for the coming 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not waiting for that prophecy to be fulfilled. A great mystery of godliness is that Jesus Christ was preached unto the Gentiles and believed on in the world. 1 Timothy 3.16, and Paul wrote that before 70 A.D. What can we take away from Romans 1.8? First, I thank my God. Is he your God, brethren? Do you thank God for every good thing in your life? Do you understand that it all came through Jesus Christ? Is your faith great? Is your faith great enough to be spoken of? Is your faith great enough to be spoken of outside the borders of our city? May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Romans chapter 1 and verse 8. Amen.